0: beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money saying give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You may be seated. And Father, we pray for you to be glorified through your word this morning. We pray that hearts would be touched and and opened through the work of your spirit to receive the word that you've given us. We pray for hearts that perhaps have not been changed by the gospel yet, that you and your sovereign grace would grant new life. We would respond with with faith and belief, trust in your son Jesus. And if our our hearts have been converted, we have new life. We pray that 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 new life would be energized this morning as we think about your grace being worked out through the working of your spirit. We pray all of this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, uh, a man called me and and said that he and his wife would like to meet with me. And uh, I I said, sure, I'd I'd love to meet with you. Sometimes whenever someone says they want to meet with me, I get a little bit nervous because I'm worried something, maybe I've done something offensive or something has gone wrong. But I I felt very excited about meeting with with this couple, just a very dear, sweet, godly couple. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to get together. And so I went over to their house. And this man told me, he said, uh, it's it's been a really rough few weeks. There's been a lot of tumultuous things taking place in the life of our family. I said, well, what's been going on? He told me that his, his son had written him a letter. And in the letter, his son told him, he said, Dad, I don't think you're a Christian. I, I don't see evidence of of God at work in your life. I don't see a, a new life. I don't see the Spirit. Your great dad love you, but I, I don't see. I, I think you may not be a believer. I think you may not be a Christian. And this man was was taken aback by the letter. I thought about it a little bit, and then he took the letter to his wife and he told her. He said, "Our son wrote this letter. He he thinks I'm not a Christian." Now, and this this couple is a dear couple. They had been in ministry for years, in churches for decades. They had been welcomed into membership of of our church. And he says to his wife, this letter, my son says that he doesn't think I'm a Christian. his wife, very sweet, very wise woman, she had the perfect response. She said, well, what do you think? And he said, I think he's right. (laughs) And this dear man, Repented of his sins, recognized he didn't have new life in him, and and placed his faith in Jesus Christ and became a a new man. Now, I I share this story with you, and and by the way, I I have uh, his his and his wife's permission to to share this with you. I share this story with you, uh, not to make those of you who are genuine believers to to doubt your faith or to question your faith or to go in a a downward spiral or something, I I share this story with you to to caution us. You see, this man was a a nice man, is a nice man, a, a good man. But at that point when his son wrote him a letter, at that point he was not a new man He had not been what scripture describes as born again. He didn't have new life imparted from God. He was still an old man. And by God's grace, he became a new man. And in our church this morning, I'm I'm fairly certain that in this room, there are many people who are good men or, or nice men or children, nice women, kind women, kind children, but not new men, not new women, not new children, not those who've been what the scripture describes as born again. We haven't received new life. We're not Christians. And what I want you to do this morning is, is look at this text with me. And this morning you may realize as, as we talk about what it looks like to have new life, you, you may realize you're not. A believer, you don't have the new life within you. And I hope that you would be encouraged this morning to turn to God for his salvation that he offers freely without reproach. Here's the main idea that I want us to grasp as as we look at these verses together. The main idea is this the gospel brings new life in Christ, not an improved old life in the flesh. That, that, that's the main thing that I want us to kind of be thinking about this morning as we look at this, this story. The gospel brings new life in Christ, not an improved old life in the flesh. When we receive the gospel message, when God brings us into new life, it's not just improving our old life, it's bringing new life in Jesus Christ. Now remember where we are in the book of Acts. The first section of the book of Acts deals with the witness laying its foundation we looked at some things that are always true of the church some foundational things are always true of the church and now in this the second section in Acts we're finding out some things about the nature of this witness the church is going to to see the true nature of this gospel witness and we saw uh, back when I used to preach regularly here uh, we we saw the last time I was here we we talked about how the the gospel is, is proclaimed through suffering now we're seeing that the gospel, the gospel doesn't just improve lives, it, it brings new life, and there's going to be some radical things that the church understands as they look at this new life. And to, to examine this idea that the gospel brings new life in Christ, not an improved old life in the flesh, we're going to talk about the heart in, in several different ways in relationship to the gospel. First of all, we're going to talk about the heart unchained, or excuse me, the heart unaware of the gospel. So we're first of all going to say, oh, what does a heart look like that, that doesn't know about the gospel, the heart unaware of the gospel? Then we're going to look at a heart confronted with the gospel. So the heart confronted with the gospel. What does it look like when a heart gets confronted with the truth about the kingdom of God and the good news of Jesus Christ? And then we're going to very tragically look at the heart unchanged by the gospel. What does it look like when a heart has been unchanged by the gospel? So let's first of all look at the heart unaware of the gospel. That's the first thing that we're going to look at this morning. The heart unaware of the gospel in verses 9 through 11. The heart unaware of the gospel. Look down at your text with me if you would. And we begin in verse 9. It says, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. Now, what Luke is doing is he tells us about Simon. is He's going back in time a little bit. If you look at your text, you see verses 4 through 8 describe Philip's ministry in Samaria. Remember, there's persecution that struck the church. and As persecution struck the church, Philip goes in the region of Samaria, and as he's there in Samaria, he does what the church is supposed to do, what believers are always supposed to do. He's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 9, and and people responded to it. That's verses 4 through 8. Now, verse 9 takes us back in time. Verse 9 says, okay, now here's what was happening before Philip arrived on the scene. So Philip proclaims the gospel. Here's what life was like whenever people were unaware of the gospel. And he draws our attention to a man named Simon. And he tells us kind of three things about Simon. First of all, he tells us that Simon is there in this area and he's practicing magic. And he said, well, what does that mean to practice magic? I mean, like he has coin tricks that he's doing and he kind of looks in the mirror and tries to get over. No, that's not what he's talking about. Here in the first century, we we have evidence of of different charlatans and and people who were trying to to make money and so forth by doing incantations and spells and and whatever, uh, things like that. It It was prominent among the Jews, and it was even more prominent among the Samaritans. And so what Simon was probably doing here, what is being described here, is people would come to Simon, and they would say, okay, Simon... I've got a stomach ache. Uh, I have this problem with my back and it's just killing me. Uh, I have this... this, you know, sinus congestion, can, can you help me out? Or, or Simon, I, I'm about to engage in this business opportunity. It's, it's kind of a risky thing. And I was wondering if you could kind of help me out and make sure this is going to be successful. Or I have some, some problems with my crops and I, I need you to kind of see what you can do to, to help this thing work out. Or, you know, I've got this problem with my mother-in-law. What can you do? Uh, so Simon would have some sort of incantations or spells or whatever, and he'd, he'd do these things and... Uh, people would hope that what he did would help them be successful. Their back would feel better. Their sinuses would clear. Their mother-in-law would be nicer. Whatever it was, right? And then it says, as the second thing the text tells us, is that as Simon does these things, that the people look at what he does and, and they're amazed because it, it often works out. It, it says that it says that they are. Um, they're, they're amazed, verse 9 tells us. He, he's amazing the people in this region. And you think, well, how unsophisticated of these people, right? These these, these poor first century Samaritans don't have the, the knowledge and the wisdom that we do. We live in the 21st century where we are, are the, the world of science, and so only things that are scientifically proven do, do we believe in. Now, uh, please, right? I mean... We're, Dabbling in magic is is certainly sinful, and we don't do things that are necessarily necessarily sinful, but uh, quite frankly, sometimes we're fooled and amazed by maybe some things we shouldn't be amazed by when it comes to things like our health. I was in a bookstore in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in January, and I went to the health section, and there are just shelves and shelves of books about what you can do to be healthy and, and and they tell you different things. Uh, eat lots of meat. Don't eat any meat. Take lots of vitamins. Don't take any vitamins. Uh, run a million miles a week. Don't run at all. I, I picked up a book, kind of started flipping through it, and thought, oh, this is kind of interesting, and I I bought the book. And I've started doing the things in the, I didn't talk to a doctor, I didn't talk to someone who, and, and uh, I'm amazed <laughs> I'm amazed by the things I, I feel better or whatever and so if you were asked me does that book work I say yeah this is an amazing thing I don't know I have often thought over the last few weeks as I've kind of made some changes to my my diet and stuff I thought what if I picked out another book like what would I be doing right now I probably this is amazing this is life changing Or vitamins you know I know uh, this I gotta be careful here um, vitamins or supplements or fragrances, I mean, there's some of us who, who's, who are really confident these things work. Personally, I've always been a little skeptical of vitamins and supplements, but man, COVID hit my house. I'm on the internet. Vitamin D, you say. Oh, okay, you know. <laughs> Zinc, vitamin C, whatever. I mean, you all have something. I'm taking that thing. I didn't get COVID. I'm amazed, right? You know? So who knows? Who knows? Some of you know, but I don't know. They're amazed. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be too hard on him, okay? They're amazed at what Simon does something, something good happens, they're amazed. What else? He's, the third thing it tells us, he's, he's a self-proclaimer. He's going around saying, I'm great. I'm special. There's something about me that, that you need to, 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 to look toward for, for success. And verse 10 tells us they all paid attention to him from the, the least to the greatest. They're all, they're all aware of, of his, what they think is power. And he says, this man is the power of God that is called great. They, they think he has some of the, the characteristics or attributes of the divine. And so they are looking to him as something great. Now, here's what I want you to see. This is the heart. This is the heart that's unaware of the gospel, this is what the heart looks like before the gospel arrives. A couple things about the heart we see here. First of all, on Simon's part, the heart that's, that's unaware of the gospel desires the applause and the praise of men. Simon craves that attention. He wants people to call him great. He wants to be seen as something powerful. And we're, we're the same way. We desire in our flesh the, the applause of men. I can remember being in high school and so craving the approval of my peers. And it caused me to be cautious sometimes about speaking the truth about the gospel and about Jesus. I, I, I craved the applause of my peers. And now it's over 20 years later, and th- that applause seems very faint indeed, right? And 20 years from now, it's going to see even more faint. In 100 years and in 10,000 years, how insignificant will that applause seem? The heart that's unaware of the gospel doesn't understand that. The, the applause and the praise of men seems, seems like an important thing to obtain. The other thing we see about the heart unaware of the gospel is that the heart unaware of the gospel thinks insignificant people are great. Simon is not that special. He's just a guy. And yet the people call him great. They think there's some sort of divine power within him. And so they they look at him as, as someone significant. And the heart, unaware of the gospel, makes this mistake over and over and over again. We think people who are actually insignificant like we are, are something great and powerful. We're awed by celebrity. And yet we know when we encounter the gospel, how foolish that is. There's a TV show called The Crown that talks about the reign of of Queen Elizabeth. And there's, there's an episode where she is receiving the Apollo 11 astronauts, these guys, these American young men who have landed on the moon. And her husband, Prince Philip, is just in awe of these men. He thinks about the, the, the majesty of what they've accomplished and he wonders what sort of insight they have into the human condition. These men who have landed and stepped on the moon and he meets them, they're, they're ill the day that he meets them. They have a cold or something and he is just utterly disappointed in how insignificant they actually are. Uh, the character in the show he tells his wife after talking with him, he says, I, talking with these these astronauts, he says, I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I expected them to be giants, gods. But in reality, they're just three little men, pale-faced with colds. That's all of our great men and women. The heart unaware the gospel thinks that insignificant things are significant. They think, Things that are not powerful are are powerful and great. The heart unaware of the gospel doesn't understand how utterly insignificant things in life are apart from God. The heart unaware of the gospel easily falls in love with worthless things. That love of worthless things defined our lives pre gospel. And preoccupation with worthless things should be past tense, true of our our former selves. Well, now we encounter the heart confronted with the gospel. What does the heart confronted with the gospel look like? And turn your attention to verses 12 through 17 here. Notice what happens. So remember... He was describing, Luke was describing what happened before verses 4 through 8, before Philip arrives. Now he he brings us into the, the time where Philip is sharing the gospel. Verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so Philip arrives on the scene. And he proclaims this good news, this gospel news about the kingdom of God. He's telling them, "Look, you can participate in the kingdom of God. You can be in relationship with God, and can be a part of the kingdom of God." So, you know, you've been you've been enthralled by these worthless things. You've been concerned about your sore neck. You've been concerned about your crops. You've been concerned about all of these things. And not that those things are, are unimportant, but it, they pale in comparison to participating in the kingdom of God. Here's how you can participate in the kingdom of God. You can be in a relationship with God himself through, it says that he's proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. You can encounter God himself and be restored in your relationship with him by turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Acts. It's the message of Philip. He's proclaiming that message, and the people believe, and they're baptized. They're identified with that message, and the text tells us that even Simon himself believes and is baptized. And there are several hard things for us to kind of wrestle with in these verses. And one of them is, is Simon's faith genuine here? We're later going to see very clear evidence that he is not a part of the church. And so I would argue that, that even though the word belief is used here, this is not a genuine belief. Oftentimes in scripture, we, we see that there's, it's possible for us to have a, an intellectual understanding of the gospel or an emotional response to the gospel and not a true belief in Jesus Christ, true trust in Jesus Christ. So, for example, Jesus, as he talks about the parable of the sower and the seeds, we see some hearts will get excited about the gospel message, but they haven't truly received it. They haven't truly, there hasn't been new birth, new life. They haven't been reborn as they've truly trusted in Jesus Christ. There's an intellectual understanding, maybe an emotional response or an agreement with it, but not truly trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See in the book of James that even the demons believe that God is one and tremble. So it's not enough just to have an intellectual understanding of who God is or an agreement with some facts. We must trust in Jesus Christ. And so Simon, he believes some things about Jesus, but we're going to see that this is not Genuine faith, I believe. There's another kind of hard thing to understand that takes place here. Look at verse 14. So Simon sees Philip doing these things. Uh, he continues with, with Philip as these great signs and miracles are performed. That's that's kind of, I think that's the same time of what's happening. It's contemporaneous with verses four through eight. And now what happens? The church in Jerusalem hears what's happened. Now remember, when the church suffers persecu- persecution at the beginning of chapter 8, the apostles stay in Jerusalem. They're the most Jewish. They don't encounter the same type of persecution as other people in the church. So the, the apostles have stayed in Jerusalem. Now they hear about how people in Samaria have responded to the word of God, and they send Peter and John. And Peter and John go there to, to confirm that they understand the gospel message. Remember, what we saw as we looked at the first section of the book of Acts, the the church is built on the apostolic authority of these these first you know these these these, cor- these um foundations of the church the apostles the church is built on the top of that their apostolic authority and teaching and so they're being sent there to say okay th- this is the this is the truth this is how we understand who Jesus is and how we interpret God's word in light of who Jesus is and so. this church is also going to be built on the apostolic authority of these first apostles. And they they go there, and so they're going to go, and the church in Samaria is going to, these new believers are going to recognize their authority, and this authoritative group is going to recognize the genuineness of their conversion. And what happens? It says, again, this is a little little hard to to grasp, and and we're going to talk about what this means. It says, they Verse 15, these, Peter and John come to them and they pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. But what is what's happening here? Some have argued that what's happening here is that they've become Christians, but they weren't indwelled by the Holy Spirit yet. There was a two-stage process. Some Christians would say this is this is normal. This is some people would call themselves Christians would say this this is normal. This is how it, it always takes place. You become a Christian, and later you can have this second baptism with the Holy Spirit, and this is this is how things go. So, for example, our charismatic some of our charismatic brothers and sisters would say this. So you you get saved, and then there's this second special baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact. Um, Whitney, whenever she was in high school, was uh, asked out to prom by this uh, this guy who was a, a charismatic, and and he was uh, trying to convince her to be baptized again with the Holy Spirit and to start speaking in tongues. And I thought it was a rather strange, um, a rather strange uh, flirting technique, or you know, strange way to. We thought, well, that's what charismatic guys do. Hey, you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit a second time? I don't know. I, it's a little strange uh, to me. But uh, we have brothers and sisters who would, who would say that's, that's normative. Okay? That's, that's what happens. Others would say, look at this passage and say, well, this is, this is a unique period in the church history. The, per, the people were truly saved, but they hadn't yet been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that was something that was going to take place in, in time. And this is just to help the new believers recognize the authority of the early church and help the early church to recognize that these are genuine believers. I, I think something a little bit different, I think it's that general idea, but I think something a little bit different is happening here. I, I believe that as the genuine believers recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God gave them new life, they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and they received the Holy Spirit. I, I think that's already happened for these believers. I think it's similar to what happens to the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Remember, the apostles in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus Christ rose from the dead, they they believed in him and they received the Holy Spirit. But then later in Acts chapter two, there's a special receiving of the Holy Spirit that's accompanied with signs and wonders. And this happens several times in the book of Acts to show the genuineness of the Spirit's work. It's this outward manifestation of what's taken place inwardly already. And, and I think that's what's happening here. I think these who are genuine believers have already been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And now there's this special sign this special visible manifestation that lets the Apostles know okay these people are are genuinely part of the church and it lets these people know okay the Holy Spirit is is uh, is is a uh, is a reality and we are to look to these apostles for our understanding of the gospel message they're uniquely authoritative I, I think that's what's happening here what I want you to take away from this, this these verses, Sometimes we use the phrase born again. I, I, I'm born again. I res, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm, I've, I've been born again. Sometimes when we use that phrase born again, we're describing things we've done. I, I placed my faith in Jesus and, I, and I'm born. We're talking about the actions we've done. I prayed a prayer and I'm, now I'm born again. I, I asked Jesus into my heart now I'm born again. And, and I would encourage us to be a, a little bit more careful perhaps with our, with our wording When we talk about being born again, we're talking about a work that God and God alone does. We talk we're talking about the word regeneration, new life. All means the same thing: new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus this in John chapter three: unless one is born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. First John 5, 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been what? Born of God. They've been born again. No one is a Christian who has not received new life. And one of the dangerous things about the contemporary church is we don't teach that message. We say, well, pray this prayer or, or uh, think these nice thoughts about Jesus and 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 you can go to heaven. When in reality, we should include this message. Look, what, what God calls you to do is to turn from your sin and, and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you don't just become an improved version of your old self, you become By God's work within your heart, you become a new creature. You're a new person. And to fail to to proclaim that truth can cause some of us to just stay in our sins and not truly turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. The message that we don't really need to change all that much is what A.W. Tozer calls the message of the new cross. The new cross says, "Ah, you don't have to change. Just, Just be yourself and a little bit better. Maybe a lot better in some of your cases. (laughs) Here's what he says. Listen to what A.W. Tozer Tozer says. He says, the new cross doesn't slay the sinner. It just redirects him or her. It gears him to a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, well, assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, well, do your boasting in the Lord. To the assertive, it says, Well, assert yourself for Christ. To the thrill seeker, it says, Come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue in order to make it acceptable to the public. But listen to what he says about the message of the Old Cross, the true gospel. The Old Cross is a symbol of death, it stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have. It ended. The cross made no compromise. It didn't modify anything. It spared nothing. It slew all of the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard, and when it finished its work, the man Was no more. That's the gospel message. The heart confronted with the gospel is told look, there can be no compromise here. Jesus Christ must be all. We need to ask ourselves this question Is it possible I've misunderstood the gospel? Is it possible I, I don't have new life? Have I simply just been hearing a message about Jesus and thinking, well, I'm, I'm just going to be kind of a, a better version of myself? I'm going to try to lose my temper less. Jesus is going to help me not be maybe as angry as I was. I'm going to keep my same idols and desires, but just be a little bit of a better Daniel. Is it possible we've misunderstood the gospel? The gospel tells us we must die. receive new life a new life that can only be found in christ left in our flesh we will certainly perish and sadly we now see evidence in this next section that simon does not have new life let's look at the heart unchanged by the gospel the heart unchanged by the gospel these verses have been some of the most frightening verses in all of scripture for me Especially earlier in my, my Christian life, in college particularly. I think that's healthy, and I hope that you're troubled by them in a helpful way, in a God honoring way. And if you're a genuine believer, not, not shaken in your confidence, but stirred up by these words and, and desire to see the fruit that we, we see a genuine believer needs. So here's the heart unchanged by the gospel. And let's look at Simon. And there are several things in this text that help us understand that Simon's heart has not been transformed by the gospel. He doesn't have new life. First of all, we see that his heart doesn't grasp the nature of the gospel. Look at verse 18. Simon sees that the spirit is given on through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and what does he do? He offers money. What does this reveal? He doesn't understand the nature of how God works. He doesn't understand that the basic truth of the gospel, that God's grace Is given, not earned or purchased. You and I cannot receive the grace of God through our good works, through our money. There is no means by which we can obtain God's free gift. Simon doesn't grasp that at all. We also see in these verses that his heart still has the same root desires and he worships the same idols. He wants, he says, verse 19, the power. He's been called the power before. Now his power has been shown to be insignificant, puny, impotent. Now he says, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. His idols have not changed. He hasn't seen the beauty of Jesus Christ and said, all other idols that I have are are." are are nothing in comparison with the value of obtaining and possessing Jesus Christ. Simon doesn't get that at all. And so it's another indication that his heart has not been made new. He's not been reborn. It's the same idols, just with a different name. The third thing that we see that shows us that his heart is unchanged by the gospel is what Peter says. Peter's words are condemning. May your silver perish with you, he says in verse 20, because you thought you could obtain the, the gift of God with money. In other words, you're in line of perishing and may your silver perish with you. You're still in line of God's wrath and judgment. Then he says, you're not part of us. You have no part with us or a lot in this matter. You're, you're not part of the, this church. You've been baptized, you've been identified with us, but it's clear now by the, the fruit that's coming out of your life that you are not genuinely part of the church. And then he says, there's still a need to repent. Repent. And he says, if possible, in other words, not by your own works, but by God's grace that he would save you. He still needs what? A new heart. What is he? He's in bondage. He says, I I look at you and I see you're in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. You're still trapped in your sin. And the, the, the fourth thing we see that shows us that Simon's heart is not changed is he he, he asks he, he doesn't do what peter has just told him to do peter says pray out and cry out to god for his mercy and and simon says well will you do it for me there's a sorrow but it's not a godly sorrow now any one of these things might be true of us momentarily as as believers there might be a moment where this could be true of of any of us, and I'm sure at times all of these things are momentarily true of us in, in some ways in terms of being uh, evidencing life live like we're under the old man or in the old man or woman. They shouldn't be characteristics of us. You say, well, how do I know? What are some signs of an unchanged heart let, let's let's talk about that. let me let me give you some questions, some some signs of an unchanged heart, questions to ask yourself to to see, has my heart changed? Number one, first question is this, do I I love the world or do I love God? The heart that's been changed by God, that's been regenerated, that's new, is going to love God, not the world. Remember as we went through 1 John, we, we talked a lot about this. First John gives us some characteristics. Okay, a person who loves God is, is going to live this way. So, for example, First John chapter 2, verse 29, If, if you know that he is righteous, you may sure, be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, a person that finds himself practicing righteousness knows that they love God, and that's a sign that their heart is new. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God. If I find myself loving God and and loving his people, then what, what is that? That's a sign that I love God. If I don't love God's people, if I don't love his commandments, I don't want to walk in righteousness, it's a sign that I love the world. That could be an indication of an unchanged heart. Second question to ask, number two, do I see the works of the flesh, or do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? We went through Galatians 5, and we, we talked about the, the works of the flesh, the works of immorality, the, the dissensions, divisions, contentions, jealousy, envy, all those things that are characteristic of the, of the flesh. And we see that, If we see that lived out in our lives, it's an indication this, this heart has not been changed. The same works of the flesh that I was doing before I prayed that prayer, I'm still seeing, and no real growth in that. But when we see the works of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in our life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What is that? That's sign that there's a, there's a new heart. There's been a life change that's taken place. Here's the third question to think about. Do I long for my old idols, or do I want to turn away from them? Do I long for my old idols, or do I desire to turn away from them? Simon's idols haven't changed. They've they've just taken on new names. He'll gladly give up money. He'll gladly name the name of Jesus, but but he still craves his his root, the, the, the bottom of his heart, he still just craves the the, the the fleshly approval of other people that that desire for the praise and the applause and the adoration of men has changed not at all. Now again, it is absolutely possible and and, and indeed it's it's certain that I'm going to struggle with with idols. Calvin called our, our hearts uh, Idol making factory. There was going to be constantly these, these idols that are produced by our hearts, and there's always going to be this temptation to live in the old man. And sometimes we're going to succumb at moments to that temptation. But as we look at it, the, the deepest, the deepest parts of our heart, can our, can our hearts cry out, I desire by God's grace to be freed from these idols. These idols of, of respect and these idols for the approval of other people and the idol of money and the, the idol of immorality, the idol of my anger, the idol of, of uh, calm or peace or whatever it is, whatever idol I, I struggle with in my, in my deepest heart, by God's grace, do I long to be free from that? And if I can't say that I honestly desire to be free from that, there is a a real possibility that my heart has not been transformed by the gospel. But if I can say, oh, God, this is still present in my life, but by your grace, please, please, I beseech you, God, free me from the love of these idols. What is that? That is a sign that God is at work in our hearts, that we have a new heart that desires ultimately him and not these other things. And then finally, here's a, here's a question to ask ourselves. Do I, do I demonstrate worldly or godly sorrow? Simon seems so pathetic here in the text. Oh, I don't want this. I, I, I don't want this, Peter. Please pray that, that, that this would be, you know, the, the, none of the things you're saying would happen to me. I, I, I don't want that. what what do even those words reveal? As he says those words, he's revealing that he is still trapped in sin. Peter has told him what to do, cry out to the Lord. But he's revealing from 2 Corinthians 7 that it's a, a worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow, godly grief, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas, Worldly grief produces death. We've all seen this, right? We've all seen this reality. Someone comes to us and they say, Boy, I'm I'm really struggling. My my marriage is on the rocks. I've really messed up at work in a relationship, and it is it's going to be my ruin. I have a terrible relationship with mom and dad right now. I have rebelled against them, and I have done some things, and I am in deep trouble with mom and dad. I, I'm, I'm trapped in this immorality. Maybe it's a relationship, a dating relationship, or I, I'm, I'm uh, entrapped in some other t- type of immorality, and and I can't escape. And someone has come to us. We've had this conversation. Maybe we've experienced it ourselves. And we've said, okay, That it's good that you recognize it. It's good that you feel bad about that. Now, cry out to God for his salvation and deliverance. Ah, if only I could. Cry out to God for his salvation and his deliverance and turn from that sin. Oh, I'd love to, but you don't understand my wife. It'll never work boy, I would love to, but you don't understand how unreasonable my my boss is. This is, I'm toast. I can't change. I would love to have that relationship with mom and dad, but I messed up too deeply, and I can never really respect them anyway because they're so unreasonable. I would love to escape that immorality, but you don't understand how strong its hold is on me. What is all of that? That is all signs of a god of a worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. What does God call us to do? Cry out to him for deliverance. That's what Peter's words are to Simon, and if Simon had had, I believe, A regenerate heart, if he was a new person, if he'd been born again, as he heard those words, what would he have done? Cried out to God for forgiveness. Or been the most miserable person in his sin. The gospel brings new life in Christ. Perhaps this morning you find yourself in this situation where you say, Boy, I I don't know about my heart. I'd encourage you to, to, to pray. Ask God to, to continue to reveal the condition of your heart. Cry out to God for his salvation, for his His life. Say, so well, how, how, how do I respond? If, if I if I recognize I don't have an unchanged heart, how do I, how do I respond? respond just like our, our dear brother did at the, the beginning that I told you about. What do you do? God, help me. <laughs> God will not turn away all those who come to him seeking his forgiveness. He turns away the proud. He turns away the self-righteous. But all who come crying to him for mercy, receive it. If you're a believer, that should be a precious truth to you this morning. If you're not, I'm praying, as I've been praying for this message, that God would be stirring in your heart even now as you hear his word, that you respond in faith. The gospel brings new life in Christ, not an improved old life in the flesh. We cry out to God for salvation. The God who will not cast anyone out who turns to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this good news of your son, Jesus. And Father, we cry out to you this morning for your continued mercy. For those of us who are in you and yet find ourselves in ensnared by various sins. Father, we, we turn from those turning to your son Jesus, placing our confidence in him alone. For those who may have been a part of the church for a long time, but, but haven't received new life, I pray that your spirit would do your work in them this morning, drawing them to yourself and calling them to cry out to you through faith in your son Jesus for salvation that can only be found in his name. And they would receive the kingdom that you offer freely and without reproach. We pray these things in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen.